instead of training to specific team behaviors, we think about what are the conditions of the team that will lead to the good behaviors that we want teams to engage in. And those things in general are psychological safety, clear shared mental models, clear goals and priorities. And then because people are professionals and excellent at their job, if those conditions are right, then they'll take care of the rest. Hi folks, I'm Dan Dworkis, and this is the Emergency Mind Podcast, a space where we bring together lessons from the emergency department and beyond about performance when it matters the most and applying knowledge under pressure. Our guest this episode is Dr. Eve Purdy. Eve is a Canadian-trained emergency medicine specialist and an applied anthropologist at the Gold Coast Hospital and Health Service. She's also an honorary assistant professor at Bonn University. She works with teams of all kinds to explore how culture impacts performance and has done just exceptional work in the areas of psychological safety, simulation, and interdisciplinary team performance. You can find her on Twitter at Purdy underscore Eve. That's P-U-R-D-Y underscore E-V-E. In this episode, we talk about what it takes to build just absolutely epic teams. We talk about implicit and explicit communication under pressure in a variety of team settings, the value of looking at team behaviors as opposed to individual behaviors, and just a ton more. Before we get started, a quick reminder. If you want to join individuals and teams around the world who are working to perform under pressure, there are so many ways to get involved with the Emergency Mind Project community, and we would love to have you. The easiest way to jump in is to sign up for our free newsletter. It's called Knowledge Under Pressure, and you can find it at emergencymind.com slash signup. Okay, all that said, let's jump into this awesome episode. I hope you enjoy. All right, Eve, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It is an absolute delight to get to talk to you again in perhaps like a more formal setting than we were last time, but nevertheless, I am really jazzed to have you on the podcast. Thank you for coming. I'm thrilled to be here, Dan. <laughs> So for folks that don't know you, that haven't yet been lucky enough to get drawn into like a deep, intense conversation with you as I have been, who are you? What do you do? And and what's your like 30,000 foot overview? Sure. I am an emergency physician and I work at the Gold Coast Hospital and Health Service in Australia. But in addition to that, I also have a background in applied anthropology and I'm really fascinated by how teams work and how teams are impacted by culture and organizational culture. So I basically combine those two interests uh, in my day job on the floor as an emergency physician, but spend time at researching how teams around the hospital work as well. That is so cool to me because I think it's such a rare thing to have those types of relationships between different divisions within a hospital, right? Like so often we're very siloed and the stuff that one group learns really doesn't translate into the other universes in part because you know, there are real differences between our job sets, but also in part because we just don't actually talk to each other about it a lot. How does that work? Like, how do you, how do you communicate with folks in other, in other parts of the hospital like that? And, and what's that, what are those relationships like? Oh, Dan, one of the biggest privileges of the work that I do is getting to see how different places around the hospital work. So uh, we do work with the emergency department and with trauma, which is obviously a very familiar space to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, But over the last 18 months, I've been doing work with our obstetrics unit, with our cardiac cath lab, and with our intensive care unit as well. Uh, And to see how different groups go about their work, it really has highlighted to me the importance and the centrality of um, relationships in whatever that work is. So we have found that if we go to the obstetrics and midwifery team and work with them on improving their postpartum hemorrhage care, uh, central to improving that work process is 
understanding the relationships and the culture within that team. Once we do that, then we can work with them on improvement. The same goes for cardiac cath lab. There's very unique differences in the relationships between the um, cardiac cath scientists and the doctors uh, and the nurses in cath lab that might be slightly different than what we saw in obstetrics. But really, if we focus and understand them in that group, then heck, we can work on making any team uh, any team better. So even though there's differences within teams, I'd say there's probably more similarities than there are differences, even if it doesn't seem like that at the surface. Mm, so cool. And I, we're going to talk obviously a ton about culture and building culture today, but what a cool part of culture to highlight right from the beginning that these different groups are interested in learning and improving their skill sets as a team. And that there's something about I guess, I guess I'd ask that as a question, like, do you think there's something about your hospital and your shop that makes this part of the culture? Or how did you guys arrive at that? I'm sure a lot of people listening are like, oh, it'd be cool to talk to our cath lab folks, but uh, that's a really hard barrier to cross. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of getting to this point deserves a shout out to Victoria Brazel, who's been kind of instrumental in creating a high performance teamwork strategy mm -hmm. at uh, our hospital. So really the at the hospital board and organizational level, they have embraced this idea and that we should be striving towards high mm -hmm. performance. And it's been a bit of a journey with different teams and sorting out where they are on that spectrum of wanting to strive towards high performance. Our general principle has been that you want to get better to work with us. And it's probably a little bit hard to start with teams that are at a, a kind of at a different starting point. But I mean, ultimately, you go around the hospital and people are there because they want to look after patients and they want to do that well. And I think that most teams are at a place where they can engage in that. Uh, and then we're lucky to be kind of supported at an organizational level to make that happen. Hmm. So there's this underpinning of from in each team, this desire to improve and get better. And they they bring you all in as this sort of like cultural SWAT team. Can we call it that? That's sort of a weird thing to say, but a cultural SWAT team that comes in and helps them sort of understand a little bit more about what's going on and learns from them a ton too, clearly about how their inner workings are. What's that process like? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, really core to this process is working with teams to identify something that they're interested in and something that they want to get better in. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's it's basically impossible to go to a group and say, hey, look, we want to focus on your culture and we want to improve your culture. You just get met with, you know, silly stares. And ultimately, that is not actually that's not actually the goal. We do want work processes to improve and patients to get better cared for. So I think one of the keys is meeting people at a place where they're really interested. Uh, so for example, one of the very first projects that we undertook was looking to see and understand how we can improve the first hour of trauma care. Why did we pick that? Uh, well, it's basically kind of like the watering hole of the emergency department. If you focus on the first hour of trauma care, you get ED doctors, ED nurses, general surgeons, radiographers, radiologists, a whole bunch of people who are very interested in that specific problem. It's something that gets people to the table. Uh, and as soon as you get people to the table, then you get to learn about all sorts of things. And, and I like to think that, you know, if we can think about and improve the first hour of trauma care by let's say, improving our relationships with general surgeons, then our discussion about the patient with acute appendicitis is also going to go a lot better. So focusing on something that people are interested in and want to improve can be quite helpful. And it doesn't always have to be something that's as, I guess, acute or as kind of really sharp as trauma care. When we're working with the cath lab right now, we're looking at cath lab efficiency throughout the day. So a, a little bit perhaps more boring to some people, but that's something that 
the cath lab really cares about. And so identifying what is a work process that gets people excited uh, is a great starting point. So cool. Such an interesting way to, to jump into it like that. And and you mentioned earlier that that you see a lot of similarities between these different high-performing teams, because each one of these teams is an absolute expert in their own right. They they own their domain, they do the work that's important, and they're interested in getting better. And you're seeing these similarities between them. What's that like? Can we press on that? Like, what are some of the things you see that that unify these like high-performing teams? Oh, I mean, so some of these unifying factors don't really come from from me necessarily. There's this whole basis of teamwork science that helps us understand how teams work. Uh, So really one of the guiding theories that our team has used to understand teams and that has allowed us to see some of these similarities is called relational coordination. And this is a theory from Jody Hoffer-Gattel that has been used across industries, was actually developed in the airline industry. Uh, But interestingly, not uh, in the kind of sharp aspect of aviation that we're used to thinking about in emergency medicine. So not kind of CRM, your plane's crashing, what are you going to do? Her question was actually, look, I see that there's this one airline that does an excellent job of getting their passengers to their destinations with their bags on time. And how does that happen? And why does that happen in one kind of company and not the others. Um, so all of all of her research centered around that. And what she eventually came up with was this understanding that complex interdependent work really is founded on three principles. Shared knowledge of what other people's roles are, shared goals, what do we want to accomplish, and mutual respect. So an understanding that people bring something to the table that might be different than yours, and that's of importance. And then all of this in the setting of communication that is high quality and timely. So really, that core theory has allowed us to understand really how teams work. And sometimes when something's going wrong in one of those aspects, that gives us a lot of insight into how we can into how we can help. So this is actually something that we study within all the teams, uh, or not all the teams, but many of the teams that we work with, we actually take a look at what relational coordination looks like in their in their teams with some quantitative measures, and also some interviews and focus groups and using simulation. And do you find that teams that you work with are, are they aware of these ideas? Do they label them by other things? Are they like, oh, you know, we, we had never thought about it in those words, but here's what we do about it. Or are there groups that you encounter that are mostly, you know, where that's sort of like an under, I guess you'd call it like an unconscious theme about what they're doing? Yeah, that's a great question. There are different teams with different levels of kind of teamwork savvy, I would say. So there are some teams with whom these types of concepts are actually more familiar than others. So for trauma care is a pretty good example. We actually do have some baseline level of knowledge around teams when you're participating in a, in a trauma team because we've done something like ATLS. And even though that's very basic, it at least is a starting point for some language around teams. Uh, but there's certainly some other teams around the hospital where the, this is this is news and this is something quite different, which gets to the point of, of how do we actually kind of engage with teams around this. And it's oftentimes not using this type of fancy language. That's why we center this around a work process, because it's something that people can really find tangible. So, you know, if you're thinking about, let's say, postpartum hemorrhage, we'll talk about, do you know what the roles of the other people on the team are in getting a patient with postpartum hemorrhage to theater? And all of a sudden, people can understand that a little bit more because it's about a problem that they deal with every day in their workplace. So, yeah, you sometimes have to meet teams a little bit where they're at with their knowledge of uh, how teams work. 
Yeah, it's, it's so interesting mapping those mental models back onto processes that happen in acute care and hospitals or or around those types of things, right? Because you're, you're there's some stuff like you're describing that we all have some engagement in and some that really falls only within like one person's domain. And it, there's a lot of that that's that's invisible. You know, we've talked sometimes in the podcast about the hidden curriculum in medicine and sort of what that is. And I wonder if that's something that's rearing its head right now as we're talking. Like, do you think that a lot of this is hidden curriculum that teams are working with, or is it in a different space than that even? I think it's not even so much a curriculum because this isn't Mm -hmm. something necessarily that we're kind of teaching. This is, these are behaviors and things that teams kind of either have or they don't. And so I guess hidden curriculum wouldn't be so much, I think about so much, a bit more, I'd think about what are, yeah, what are the things that teams are doing or they're not? And what can we do to support them move towards these really good underpinnings of teamwork? And sometimes that is actually providing a language to to talk about it. We've found this, there's kind of a term that we think about called backup behavior. This is something that very good teams do to coordinate their work. So you might notice that somebody's struggling with getting a cannula in and somebody just goes over and helps. That is a very high level team behavior because it requires you to be, you know, a team member who's maybe not even the leader to be monitoring the situation, to recognize that they have some skills that may be of assistance. It requires psychological safety for the person who doesn't get the cannula to be able to ask for help. You know, all sorts of really high level team things are happening. And as soon as we pointed this out in one of our emergency department simulations, all of a sudden we've started to hear on the floor people talking about backup behavior. And we've heard people say, oh, who's going to be the backup if this doesn't work? Or who's going to, you know, the, the nurse who who's working in two to seven today is a little more junior, who's going to be able to offer some backup support to them. Uh, And so sometimes giving people language actually really validates the things that they're doing already and empowers them to do even a better job of that. So I think language can be helpful for people, but sometimes we translate these kind of higher level concepts actually just into some actions. So for example, a team huddle in the morning, I'm not sure that teams need to like completely understand why that is so important around shared mental models and situational awareness and relationships and mutual respect. It is actually just an action that will allow the teams to do some good, whether they know it or not. So yeah, a mix of maybe some theory, but also just some practical things that will support teams. I love it. I love it. You don't need to understand why you have to use this, but like, let's get after it and get it done. Like, yeah. And then all of a sudden they say, oh yeah, work is so much better with this. And you're like, (laughs) actually very, uh, very well established, but you know, people don't necessarily want to, you know, want to hear all of the evidence. Some people do, but most people don't. Most, Most people just want things that work. Not everybody wants to nerd out about it like you and I do. I understand. I understand. <laughs> yeah. But they do want the outcome of it. I think that's why it's why it's worth like digging into the theory behind it a little bit like this to sort of get a better sense of it. You know, I, I'm really struck by something that you said in the middle there about backup behavior being a team level behavior. Cause I think we talk on the podcast a lot about sort of the differences between team, like individual level, team level and organizational level subsets of structures and tools. Can we press on that a little bit? Like, like what is it that makes backup behavior a team level behavior as opposed to an individual level behavior? And then sort of like the sub question underneath this is, geez, how do you get at and train team behaviors in general? Uh, Yeah. So if we focus, I guess, first on backup behavior, this is one of my, I suppose, one of the things that I feel most passionate about in our quest to improve behaviors in healthcare. So if we think about backup behavior as an individual behavior, 
we will just tell people to do backup behavior more. And that just won't work. It's a bit like speaking up. You know, if, if we think of speaking up as an individual level behavior, then we will just tell people to speak up and we'll give them some tools about escalating their concerns. And we know that doesn't work. It doesn't do anything. <laughs> but if we think about this as a team level behavior, then all of a sudden we think about what are the things that allow it to happen. So let's think about this uh, trauma patient that really needs a cannula and the person who is struggling to get a cannula. So the backup behavior that we want in this team is for somebody to one, recognize that maybe this person is struggling and maybe recognize that they have some skills that might help. So maybe now all of a sudden somebody is trying on the opposite arm. So they've recognized that they're struggling. They've also recognized that this is a real priority for the patient. So in our bleeding trauma patient, this is the number one priority. So they, they actually have this team mental model that, heck, we really, like, we really need access in this patient. So they've got some higher level understanding. The person who's struggling with the cannula needs to recognize, one, again, that this is really important in the shared mental model, and two, feel that they belong in an environment where they can say that they're struggling um, and that they might need some extra help. So either backup behavior can kind of be pushed for and asked for, or it can be given to somebody. And that's a bit of a dance that happens in situations, but it's a team level kind of magic that allows that to happen. So all of a sudden we see if we've got a strong shared mental model for our team, if we've got some shared goals and we have some mutual respect amongst our team members, then that backup behavior is just going to happen. It's not even necessarily something that we have to plan for. It might be in certain circumstances, something that we do plan for, but if the conditions are right, the backup behavior will just happen. And so I guess this is a really fundamental piece of what our group works on is instead of training to specific team behaviors, we think about what are the conditions of the team that will lead to the good behaviors that we want teams to engage in. And those things in general are psychological safety, clear shared mental models, clear goals and priorities. And then because people are professionals and excellent at their job, if those conditions are right, then they'll take care of the rest. Almost looking at these as like emergent properties of high-functioning totally. teams. Am, am I reading that right? Yeah, definitely. So instead of training to a behavior, let's get the yeah get the conditions right, and then it will just emerge and happen the way that we want it to. And I think we've you know many of us have been involved in resuscitations like that. Whereas the team leader, you know, you've done a pre-briefing, everybody's aware of what's happening. The team has worked together. Maybe they've just run another trauma together, and you basically just get to stand back and watch the magic happen. Uh, and that's the dream. That's the uh, you know that's the goal. Those are incredible moments, right? When everybody's humming along and things just start working and you're really able to put your knowledge together and really try to save somebody. I mean, those are beautiful moments. They have this, this flow-like quality to them about this, you know, this passion and this grace to them that, that mm. isn't always there, but it's amazing when it is there. Huh. Yeah. And I think that what we're seeing in those moments feels like magic, but really it's teams having, you know, capability, they're cooperating, they're able to coordinate their work, they're communicating. There are things that that we can actually see and measure in that, that then we can feed back to teams and say, you know, the reason why this went so well was because as a team, we were monitoring each other's behavior and kind of doing some mutual performance monitoring and stepping in and helping out when we could. And then also, you know, the setting and the culture of the team is not that anybody felt like that was a 
a negative thing. Like you can imagine if you're sitting there trying to get a cannula and then all of a sudden you see somebody else trying on the other side, there's two responses to that. One response is, oh my God, I'm doing a terrible job. This is awful. Or, oh my God, thank goodness somebody else recognizes this is a priority and sees that I'm struggling and is also trying to help. And if we can get our teams to the place where they think it's the second of those, then we're probably in a good place. Not to ask a million dollar question here, but like, how do you do that? Yeah. So a lot of our work has been around psychological safety specifically, which I I guess that example gets a bit to the heart of. And we have looked uh, with some granular detail at what psychological safety looks like in the emergency department, how it's generated and how it is threatened. And I guess when we look at how it's generated, we come back to that model that you're talking about earlier. There's the individual, the team, and the organizational level factors that lead to lead to psychological safety. And just for many of your listeners will be aware, but psychological safety is this team-based sense that uh, the group is safe for interpersonal risk taking. So asking for help with the cannula, challenging the dose of metoprolol, offering a good suggestion, being vulnerable as a team leader. These are the types of things that we know are really important for doing our work well. And there are just some individual level factors that come into play. How confident are you? There are some personality traits that come into play. But what we found in the emergency department is that is a teensy tiny, very small piece of what actually contributes to the overall psychological safety. So much so that I would even say it's essentially irrelevant. There's not really so much that we can do to target that. Uh, The organizational level factors are important. So do people feel like their organization values teamwork. We see that in our data with some things like the organization has supported things like simulation, and they have explicitly shown that we're trying to get better. We're part of this continuous improvement culture. Those types of organizational signals are really important. But in the emergency department specifically, what we see is that this team level, these team level interactions are what either leads to psychological safety or kind of instantly destroys it. And the The types of things that are important are familiarity. So have you worked with these people before? Do they know you? Can you trust each other? And then the same goes for the team leader. So have you worked with this person before? Do you know them? Do you trust them? Have they treated you with respect? And this goes both ways. So we basically, as team leaders and as colleagues, are like perpetually building up our kind of bank of psychological safety and the way that we treat people. And that takes time and that takes effort and that takes ongoing attention. So the types of things that we can do in emergency medicine are huddles. So we work with a different team every day, coming together at the beginning of the day, learning each other's names, looking each other in the eye and saying, hey, we're going to have a good shift together. Sounds crazy, but honestly is just a huge thing that we can do. The other things that we can do are after action review. So after you've worked a case together at the end of the day saying, hey, what went well? What could have gone better? And that just signals that we're continuously learning together. There's lots of things that organizations can think about. Should we be having team-based rostering? How do we actually introduce new people into our group with induction and orientation? So lots of kind of high level things that we can use to bank up this psychological safety. Now, unfortunately, it does not take much to destroy it. And there are very little things, an eye roll, dismissive look, just really subtle things, especially from team leaders that can just destroy it. Uh, And the problem is that destruction gets kind of lumped to a group. 
So you can imagine that if a, as a consultant, I make a medical student feel really crummy by rolling my eyes at them that I didn't even notice when they show up to their next shift and they're working with a different consultant the next day that carries forward with Mm -hmm. them. Uh, So we really have a duty to attend to the shift after shift and make sure that it's something that we're focusing on for our teams. I wish it was easy. It is not. It is something that happens in every interaction and it's not one and done. It's just constantly attended to. Yeah, there's there's almost this this sense of a wake that goes along around you, right? Like you're creating these ripples out into the organization with your actions, which is which is ironic in a sense. Even as you started this, saying like, well, it's actually not really individual factors that you can do that that relates to creation of psych safety, mm. but there's this. I don't know, this dichotomy almost, or this I have paradox, I guess is a better word of it, that that you know, it's not about the individual, but it is the individual's actions that contribute collectively to this group. So you have to be aware of your interactions and of the higher level sort of emergent properties of the of the team that you're on, which can feel like a lot if you're a junior person, especially, or even a senior person who is also struggling under the cognitive load of a really high stakes resuscitation. Yeah. And for I think for many of us, it's even almost less the high stakes resuscitation and it is more the like relentlessness of the shift. So I certainly find that the times that I get into trouble with going into the negatives of psychological safety is when I'm eight hours into a shift and I get asked, you know, there's five people lined up to ask me a question. And I just it's when I'm overwhelmed or when I'm uh, tired or I have no more decisions left that I um, sometimes behave in a way that I know is not helpful. And fortunately, what we know is that if we go to lengths to repair that, that can actually further increase psychological safety. So if you behave badly, not all is lost. Apologizing and repairing can can go a long ways, but you do have to recognize that it happens, that it happens uh, and care about the way that you've kind of the, yeah. the way that you've made other people feel. The tricky part is I think we don't even notice it. So in in our data in the emergency department, what we found was that consultants were far more psychologically safe than the nurses in our department. And this is a really nice department. I work in a very friendly, very collegial department. And so this data is a bit was even a bit shocking to us to see that the consultants feel so much more psychologically safe than, than everybody else in the department. And this is a, not a unique phenomenon to emergency medicine or our group. It's pretty universal that the people who are at the top who have the most potential to be able to impact the experience for others are the least likely to recognize that other people might not feel safe. Uh, And certainly when we've been trying to implement some changes in our department, that's the biggest thing that we've come up against. So the natural people to lead a huddle in the morning would be the consultants. But you know, in our group, people say, do we really need to do this? It seems like a waste of time. I don't need it. I know everybody. Uh, And it's not because they're bad people, but it's because they just don't see that everybody else around them doesn't experience their shift in the emergency department the same way because they're not wearing black scrubs. Yeah, that's, I mean, so that was one of the big sentences that I highlighted from from reading your paper, you know, was this idea that those in the positions of power are the least likely to recognize that there's not uniform psychological safety in the team, right? And I think just like, like real quick sidebar for us American listeners, like consultant equals attending in this uh, sentence, yes, yeah. right? So like what we're saying is like the people who are running, running the ship, at least, you know, the leader of this resuscitation team are the least likely to have accurate optics on how psychological safety is felt by the team members. And whoa, that is like, 
you know, humbling, damning, and interesting all at the same time, because it gives us the space to realize, wow, the, the experience might not be mine. And I really need to like, look differently about what everybody's doing around this. So it's a, it's a really cool charge. Like you're saying to be like, well, it's not really about what you feel. It's about what everybody feels, even if they don't tell you about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually not about you at all, <laughs> which is something that we get confused about as consultants from time to time. For sure. <laughs> I will include myself in the guilty group. Oh, that. yeah. All of us. Yeah. So, okay. I'm, I'm really curious to extend this a little bit because, or, or I guess, I guess to imagine this being mapped onto something slightly different. So one of the interesting things that we face sometimes in emergency medicine is the difference between an intact team and a swarm team. Something that you and I have talked about a little bit in some of our other, our other circumstances here, but you know, you have your intact team and the definition of that for within an emergency department is probably different than it is within sort of the rest of the world also, right? So you think about a classic intact team, like a baseball or a cricket team or something, they they come together, they get selected together, they train together, they play together, they have multiple longitudinal interactions, which allow them to buffer and learn the habits of the other people, right? It allows them to shrug off that eye roll that happened because the next day you're also doing something different, right? On the other end of that spectrum is this swarm team idea where you come together ad hoc to solve a problem set. You've never met anybody else who's done it. And this is like you're responding to a code blue on the floor or you're coming together to solve a really dynamic problem that you haven't had to solve before for whatever reason. And you're running into a situation where you don't know anybody. There's no time for a team huddle. There's there's no time, although we can maybe debate that in a second, but there's no time for like a lot of these behaviors. And instead, you're relying a lot on roles. Like I understand, oh, Eve is the consultant from the emergency. Generally speaking, they behave like this and act like this and do these things. I am the, you know, whatever I am, maybe I'm the consultant from something else and this is what I do and these are my roles. And we have some of these things you talked about, like we have a shared knowledge of each other's roles, but they might not be explicit that might not be really shared. We just sort of have these ideas and we're really reliant on the structure. And then in the ER, we have something in the middle, right? We have a shift where maybe you come together for a shift and you haven't worked with that. We did the math the other day in my shop and it's like millions, if not billions of combinations of people that can work together on a recess shift, right? So you probably haven't worked with this unique combination of folks ever before, although maybe you've worked from some of them before and you come together and you maybe run what? three to 20 really high critical problem sets over the course of your shift, and then you disappear or some of you leave and some of you don't. So it's this weird amalgam of intact teams and swarm teams. I almost don't even know where to start this question, but like, what do you do with that? Right? Like, how do you, how do you build psychological safety into those teams where it some days is more like a swarm, some days is more like an intact and some days it's this weird beast in the middle. Oh, Dan, this is such an interesting, interesting question. And I think one of the tricky places that we've got to in emergency medicine is that we have thought of ourselves more like intact teams than we really are. Because what you say is so true. You come together and there may be people that you know and that you've worked with, but that team has never worked together before. And all it takes, I was looking at a picture of a resuscitation the other day and did a, uh, I was coming up with this reflective exercise for a group. And all you had to imagine was that the person at the airway had three or four years less experience than they did. And all of a sudden, that changes the entire dynamic of that resuscitation. And I think we just haven't 
quite gotten to the point where we have been honest enough with ourselves in emergency medicine to recognize that we are not intact teams. Mm -hmm. And so then I think if we get to that point where we realize every team that we show up with every day is different, then that allows us to be more attentive to how those subtle differences might impact our ability to work together and to come up with some clear expectations for how the day is going to go. So anytime that we think about the dynamic nature versus the stable nature of teams, uh, and I'll add to that the dynamic and the stable nature of, or not even stable, the certain versus uncertain nature of problems, that changes the type of communication that we need to have. So if you have an intact team, Uh, that works together all the time, you might not have to say anything. It might be the quietest resuscitation that you've ever done because nobody, everybody just knows what's happening. Nobody has to say anything that's 100% implicit communication. If you go to the complete opposite end of the spectrum, which is this swarm team, all of a sudden things have to be a little bit more explicit. And that explicit looks like a few things. It looks like the role definitions that you've talked about. So that is one way that we become really explicit uh, is just by assigning roles. But I would argue that there's probably some other things that need to be more explicit, like what are people's levels? What can they actually do? What are our goals? You know, we, we have to really dial up the explicit nature of that communication to be successful in any way. Uh, so in emergency medicine, I think we have uh, we often fall into this kind of implicit variety of communication because we see each other around, we've kind of worked together, but at a team level, we probably need to creep up the explicit nature of our communication. Uh, So in the morning, that might look like actually going around, seeing where people are at, me asking the registrar, look, I've worked with you before, but remind me how many patients have you intubated? And thinking about, you know, with our team today, this is the level of the a resident or registrar. Uh, and so they're actually going to be running this resuscitation or they're not with our nursing staff. Look, we've got a really junior nursing staff over here. They may need, may need a little bit of extra support. If things are taking long, it's not because they're dumb. It's because they've never worked here before. You know, we, we probably need to get more explicit if we want our teams to work to work better. And then we also have to be thinking about the certainty versus uncertainty of the problems that we face. So if a patient comes in with a STEMI, Again, we probably don't have to stay, say very much. We could, I think, I, I think this patient would get to cath lab with everything they need if me as the team leader didn't say a single thing because there's this really clear pathway of what needs to happen and everybody knows about it. If a patient comes in who's, I guess a great example was a patient that I saw earlier this year who came in with a question about whether they had anaphylaxis or not. And they had this really terrible sounding strider, but we decided not to give adrenaline because for a variety of reasons, it seemed like this was actually probably vocal cord dysfunction. But in that moment, you have to dial up the explicit nature of the communication with your team so that people don't think you're crazy. (laughs) Um, And so that the team is on the same page. And so this kind of uncertainty to certainty is just another level at which we can think about how explicit or implicit can we be with our communication. And I think if we start thinking about those kind of different axes, so what is our team dynamic versus stable? And what is the problem certain versus uncertain? We'll probably find ourselves in the right quadrant of communication for what the team needs. There's so many interesting things about that. I I think one, to map that back onto the idea, I would guess that we can apply that same idea that the, the person in position of power is likely to underestimate both the certainty and the need for explicit communication. 
Totally. Right? Yeah. Because yeah. It, you might understand why this is vocal cord paralysis, but you might not be able to explain that. I might not be able to explain that to my team coherently enough. And they're like, why isn't Dan doing X, Y, Z? Right. So, yeah. And then all of a sudden there's another consultant or attending that somebody has gone out and gotten who's beside you in the room, great. which is a backup behavior, which I respect from the team. Which is a great. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think that's a really good point, especially when it comes to kind of decision making. There's all sorts of leaps that I've taken in my head that I've not necessarily taken my team along on the journey with. And that's where we get into, that's where we can kind of get into some trouble if we're not careful. Yeah. And I think I'm very conscious of this when I work in places that aren't necessarily my home base. I'm more conscious mm-hmm. of this, right? Like I think about for um, a while, I was working at a couple of different, a couple of different shops and, you know, I was would run a trauma at this other space where I didn't know the people as well. And I didn't have as much shared history with them. And more of the team was dynamic as opposed to stable, like you'd call it. And so I was over the top explicit in my communication about stuff because it's a great antidote to sort of some of the chaos and uncertainty. But I think that I, I I mean, I think if I extrapolate this data set that you're working with and map it to me, I probably overestimate that on myself at my normal home shop. And I probably should be more explicit than I am. Um, yeah, we rarely get ourselves into trouble by being more explicit with communication. We might annoy people a little bit. Um, <laughs> you know, if I if a patient was having a STEMI and I went in and said to our excellent, extremely capable recess nursing staff, can we get the pads on the patient while I see them putting the pads on the patient? Like that's just a silly, it's just a silly thing to, mm-hmm. you know, a silly thing to do. But the, the risks of uh, underestimating the need for explicit communication, I think are, are much higher than if we over communicate. I have to tell this embarrassing story about myself in this instance, because I think it's worth, it's worth sharing, but we were running a pilot of this basically out of hospital cardiac arrest into ECMO cannulation pathway. And the idea was that we would use a pit stop model in the ED, that people would be flagged out in the pre-hospital environment. Our amazing pre-hospital teams in, in Los Angeles would go there, like start excellent care, get them into the emergency department. Our job would be to intubate them and like confirm decision and get them up to the cath lab as soon as possible. And so we're really geared up. We've piloted it a couple of times in dry runs. We're super excited about it. And it happens to be that I draw the card to be the attending on one of the first days that we do this for one of the first cases. Super exciting. I love this kind of stuff. We've briefed the team ahead of time. We've practiced what we're going to do. You know, we're, we're so geared up for this comes in, the case comes in, my residents do amazing. They intubate. My nurses are incredible. They get everything done. And I'm standing at the front. I'm saying nothing because like you said, we've we've practiced. This is a great team. And all I add to the equation is I direct the team to the elevators and I point them in the wrong direction. <laughs> and so... And- and thankfully, this did not hurt this patient at all. We were able to quickly recover and do like a slight little loop and get them up to the cath lab and they got ECMO and survived and it was wonderful. But I was standing there afterwards being like, wow, do I overestimate my abilities sometimes to contribute to a successful team? Yeah, I just did nothing. Um, I just told them to go the wrong way. And, you know, so you actually thwarted their efforts. I actually, I actually did thwart their efforts in this case. And thankfully, no harm happened. But but I think if you're listening to this and you're like, wow, how does anybody do this? Like, don't worry. Sometimes we all point people in the wrong direction as, as a leader. Um, oh, yes. Yeah, that's my confession about that, I guess. But. 
Uh, but it's interesting. So one of the things that we know goes the furthest in generating psychological safety is some vulnerability from team members, right? So if yes, after that team came... why I'm doing this. <laughs> yeah, some psychological safety <laughs> for your listeners. No, but you can imagine if after you did that and the yeah, team came back down from cath lab and then you do a little after action review of what went well and what went better and you started with, heck, I pointed you guys in the wrong direction. I'm really sorry. Next time I'll know where the cath lab is. Uh, that is all I can think about that could have gone better. Uh, now your team is going to feel like they can actually really dive into that as well. So thinking about what are these kind of micro moments as uh, people in positions of power that we can engage with to just show some vulnerability, I think uh, is pretty important. And is there's plenty of there's plenty of them around. Oh, absolutely. And that actually is what we did when we when we came back and, and, and you know, to complete the full disclosure here is that we, you know, we really did sort of break it down and be like, wow, okay, we need to think about all the factors. We need to think about like even what direction we're going to leave this room from and how to get there. And what does that look like? And what if that way is blocked? And what are we going to do? And it became this interesting exercise and sort of like, okay, well, what's our, you know, what is our backup behavior essentially for, mm -hmm. for moving the wrong direction out of the room? <laughs> an unexpected way, an unexpected way to, to add chaos to the situation. But you're right that, that I think that that, I think that that's something that I take heart in as a leader is that I can and please correct me if I'm wrong about this, because I hope this is right, but I can improve the psychological safety of the team by showing that I am learning and imperfect mm -hmm. as the as the team leader of it. And I might not be able to see the total temperature of the room, but I think that I can I can change the set point a little bit by being more uh, vulnerable, open, and imperfect. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Something that we certainly can do. I think the critical nature of that, though, is it for it to be quite authentic. You know, you actually do have to be very interested in other people's ideas of, in ways that you can improve. And, you know, it, it can't just be a cathartic, oh, I, you know, what, you know, what do people think that I could do better? It's like, no, a really authentic approach to improving your practice and seeking other people's opinions is is certainly going to go a long way in your teams. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so, but that's an interesting, like you talked earlier about batching or sort of, um, what's the right word for it? Basically, if, if you as a consultant come in and squash a medical student's hopes and dreams, then that medical student sort of blankets that effect to all consultants, right? And a, a real challenge that, that happens across teams in and out of the emergency department is that when you have different points and different leaders at different times, the differences of those people and how much they buy into this change really makes a big difference, right? And if you have a team that one day is all about psychological safety and vulnerability and talking through learning and growth, and the next day a consultant or somebody comes in and says, what are you talking about? I'm perfect. This is what we're doing. You're going to get this yo-yo effect that's like, pretty toxic, right? How do you, how do we deal with that? What do we do about that kind of a thing? Yeah. I mean, I think that speaks to the importance of the organizational level commitment to this. So I have like dreams one day of starting my own emergency department from scratch, because I think there are rituals and things that we can build in to the way that our department functions at an organizational level that demonstrate the importance of this. And, you know, that's just kind of a pipe dream. That's a bit silly thinking of utopia. But, you know, if you're sitting there as a, an emergency department, what are the ways that you can actually demonstrate that this is important. And certainly if I was an ED department head right now, I would be asking people in their performance reviews what they're doing to uh, impact the psychological safety of their teams and how they're attending to that on a shift. And that would be something that I want to hear about on a, you know, on a yearly 
basis uh, as a point of reflection for people. So, you know, what are the ways that we can inject this into our promotion structures, our things that we actually really value in a department? So I think those are the ways to get people who maybe wouldn't, you know, super engage with it to a point. But I think there's this real problem in medicine with bad apples. And I'm not speaking about my own department necessarily here, but all it takes is one person to really negatively impact psychological safety or team culture in a way that is so damaging. And we know from kind of business and management literature that if that is accepted, that is the standard at which we operate. And we've got to get pretty real soon about how we go on accepting some just outrageous behavior that now we know is linked to patient outcomes, mm-hmm. is linked to the way that our teams perform. It's not just linked to people feeling good about coming to work or not. This is linked to the things that matter to us. And I unfortunately don't have the, sol- the solutions to that, but I think as a community, we've got to start thinking about how we deal with what you say is like toxic behaviors. And it just, as long as it's accepted at an organizational level, the rest of this is, you're right, is just a little bit hard to take because you're just pushing against something. Like I, the number of times that I we get medical students that come to the emergency department And they, you know, within their first week of being there, you ask them, oh, how's your rotation going? And they'll say, oh, it's pretty good. I've just come from whatever other service. And, you know, today the consultant in the emergency department introduced themselves to me and asked what my name was. And that is the first time that has happened to me in the the hospital, right? Like, geez, (laughs) it's pretty wild. And if that's like, if that's what we've accepted as our kind of baseline norm, it's pretty hard to strive for excellence if we've set a, a low bar for what's acceptable. Yeah. I think most of the stories about of my own stories where I was, uh, when I was a medical student, I don't tell on this podcast because it doesn't, they can't be told in public the things that people yelled at me and the things like that. Right. And like, it, it just, thankfully we have come such a far away since that level of training and how we treat each other. But I think there's still so much distance to go to build like this elite level culture that we're trying to talk about here. Yeah. Yeah. And it's quite clear from some of our work in different groups that there are just some individuals that do not hold this as a value. Hmm. And that's, yeah, that's pretty hard to, uh, you actually just can't improve or shape anything if there's people that just fundamentally don't think that teamwork is important. Yeah. Which is interesting because I, I think to make this explicit, what we're, what we're saying I think this is maybe the first time we're saying this aloud in this podcast, but teams that are psychologically safe do better. They're more agile. Yeah. They perform better. Their patients do better. They're they're better at recognizing changes in problem sets and actually tackling these problem sets. And this isn't a, um, a wishy-washy thing we're going after. This is really hard hitting. Like We want our teams to be effective, and this is a piece of it. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, I care a little bit about how people feel at work. I care a lot more about is our organization performing at its best. Mm-hmm. And I think this is why the the business literature has really kind of uh, glommed on to psychological safety as something that they focus on in their organizations is because it leads to more profits. Mm-hmm. It leads to teams coming up with creative solutions to problems. It leads to teams getting better. And they see it as something that it has to just has to be fundamental to the way they do business. And I'm less sure that we've gotten there in, in healthcare. 
So, okay. So let's say we're listening to this and maybe we're in healthcare, maybe we aren't, but we lead a team and that team has some facets that are similar to an emergency team, which is to say that it's not a fully intact team. Maybe you're the leader part-time, but not full-time or something like that. You can't control everybody. You can't change the entire organization, but you can do something and you can make that shift a better shift than it would have been otherwise. What does that look like? Uh, yeah, Dan. So you and I were both at the Amazing Confidence this summer where we saw Shannon uh, McNamara's mm-hmm. talk on kind of safety yeah. two and complexity theory. And it was a transformative talk for me because she showed us the video of the starlings mm-hmm. kind of flying through the sky and how they make these beautiful, uh, you know, beautiful flocking behaviors. And science has shown us that the way that this emergent phenomenon happens is by each bird focusing just on the seven people that are around it. And I that that's the only way that I have managed to kind of when I show up to work every day in this massive organ, organization with things that are beyond my control, I just come back to the starlings and think about I can impact the few number of people that I am interacting with here on a daily basis. Uh, and I aggressively attend to their psychological safety and <laughs> some of these team behaviors. And I do that better or worse on certain days. But when I'm walking into the hospital, that's my goal. And I think if we, in these kind of big hospitals with dynamic teams, if we think of of that, if you're leading a team in any way, I think if that is your goal uh, is to you know, positively impact and role model and attend to the needs of the kind of few number of people that are around you. That's probably the best that we can do in the short term. And then of course we do kind of some of the, some of this bigger work, which is sustaining. But I, th- I think of my team that I show up with that kind of semi-dynamic group that I show up with every day as my own bit of a like laboratory experiment in creating psychological safety for that 10 hours that, that we're together. And yeah, as I said, have variable success in doing so. Um, but that's the that's the thing that I go to work thinking about. I love it. I absolutely love it. Eve, as we're, we're drawing to a close here, I want to offer you a chance to issue a challenge to everybody listening to this. What do you want them to take away from this? What do you want them to do differently tomorrow, whatever sort of a team they're, they're part of or leading or we're following in? Yeah, for whatever team you go to, I think it just builds on my last point. If you can think about when you show up to your workplace tomorrow, what you are going to do, and it can be one simple thing to enhance the psychological safety or the culture of your team, then do it. So it may be something as simple as introducing yourself to somebody that you don't know. Uh, We know that that is critically important. It may be offering some assistance. It may be setting some really clear expectations. There's various ways to do it. A very simple place, especially if you're in a healthcare organization and you're leading some type of team is thinking, about if you can just do a brief five-minute huddle and introductions in the morning, that's probably the the single easiest catch-all way to uh, to set up psychological safety for your team. But otherwise, just think about those few number of people that you're surrounded by and how you are going to make them feel that they can take an interpersonal risk with you. And if you can do that, the world will be a slightly better place. Incredible. Eve, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and, and wrestling with these deep issues with me. I deeply, deeply appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me, Dan. All right, folks, that brings us to the end of this episode. I hope you learned something and I hope you enjoyed. 
As always on this podcast, our goal is to dive deep into what it takes to perform under pressure. Nothing that we discuss here should be construed as medical advice, and all of the opinions that we discuss are our own and are not necessarily representative of any organization with which we were affiliated or for whom we work. If you want to go even deeper and get more involved, don't forget to check out our book. It's called The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure, and you can find it at emergencymind.com book. All right, good luck out there.